Welcome to the Awaken Podcast. At Awaken Church, we are passionate about wrestling with and being unraveled by the Christian scriptures. Ideally, we do this together around the table in the neighborhood of Bones. As we see it, Jesus has invited all of us to encounter him in a diverse community and participate with him in a mission of loving our neighbors. Welcome back to our third podcast on the book of Ephesians. Dallas and I are here in this very cool setup I wish you all could see in the sanctuary. Uh, We're talking about Ephesians chapter 3, and we're looking forward to this episode. It seems like a lot of the heavy lifting theologically uh, took place in chapters 1 and 2, and it shifts gears a bit here in chapter 3, so looking forward to that. Um, And before we begin, I would just say, if you are listening to these podcasts, um, we would love to hear from you. We would love to um, hear what's standing out to you, um, if anything that you've learned in these episodes has I don't know, stimulated new thoughts or a new imagination. It would be really wonderful for us to kind of know how, how this is all landing and where you're at. So please uh, connect, reach out, let us know what's good, what you would want to see more of or less of. But uh, why don't we just dive in? Dallas is going to read the first half of chapter three and we'll discuss and then we'll read the second half and discuss. So, Yeah, perfect. Ephesians 3 verse 1 to 13 reads this. This is the reason that I, Paul, am a prisoner for Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. For surely you have already heard of the commission of God's grace that was given me for you, and how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I wrote above in a few words, a reading of which will enable you to perceive my understanding of the mystery of Christ. In former generations, this mystery was not made known to humankind as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. That is, the Gentiles have become fellow heirs, members of the same body, and sharers in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I have become a servant according to the gift of God's grace that was given me by the working of his power. Although I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to bring to the Gentiles the news of the boundless riches of Christ, and to make everyone see what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the wisdom of God in its rich variety might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose that he has carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have access to God in boldness and confidence through faith in him. I pray, therefore, that you may not lose heart over my sufferings for you. They are for they are your glory. Wow. I love the way he talks about mystery, like at least three times he uses the word mystery here. Um, I think here in the West we don't talk about mystery enough. And then it, when you read it, it almost sounds like, is Paul like insecure about his suffering, like the fact that he's in jail or is he like, he brings it up. Like, listen, I know I'm trying to tell you about like how awesome uh, life is when you like walk in the Jesus way. But yeah, about these chains and imprisonment, (laughs) like there's this, he explains it. And I think he does something really profound if we uh, slow down and, and notice it. But yeah, one of the things that I wanted to touch on was also mystery and I mean, there's a lot there in just a simple little word, but I, I found this interesting piece in one of my commentaries on mystery in the Jewish tradition compared to 
uh, in the New Testament. And so I just want to read it and then we can discuss some of it. So it's just a paragraph. It says this. Second, the, the concept of mystery in Jewish sources in the Old Testament, Apocrypha and Pseudepigrapha and, uh, and the Qumran materials furnishes a good background for the concept of mystery in the New Testament and exhibits parallel ideas. One, Jewish literature frequently mentions mysteries known only to God, and in the New Testament, Paul speaks of the mystery being hidden in God in ages past. Two, the Jewish materials place much emphasis on the last days when the judgment of the wicked and vindication of the saints will occur. Mystery in the New Testament does not put much emphasis on this point, but it does have an element of this in the Gospels and Revelation. However, the differences are greater. One, Jewish literature has much to say about the future elect one who will reveal mysteries. In contrast, Christ, the New Testament equivalent to the elect one, reveals very little concerning the mystery. Two, Jewish sources teach that the elect one divulges his mysteries to an enraptured seer who had the mysteries revealed to him in heavenly splendor. Whereas in the New Testament, the mystery was revealed to the holy apostles and prophets with little or no description of how the mystery was revealed. Third, further in Jewish literature, the seer was to tell the content of the mysteries only to the closed community, and they were not to tell anyone outside of that community. Whereas in the New Testament, the holy apostles and prophets were entrusted with the knowledge of the mystery and were to make it known publicly. While Jewish writings are concerned largely with the future, the New Testament entwines mystery teaching with present realities to a greater extent. Thus, whereas the former puts more emphasis in God's reign in heaven to be realized later on earth, the latter places more significance on God's reign on earth with another phase to be realized in the future. Finally, Jewish literature dwells on God's holiness and wrath, while the New Testament is mainly concerned with God's redemptive act and love. I think it's really important to to kind of pause like you have and say, what did this idea of mysteries and mysteries being revealed mean in like the original Jewish context and understanding like there's a lot of different Jewish literature that didn't make the cut into the Bible that we as evangelicals have, but that definitely informs our understanding of what Paul may have meant. And there's just so much work we could do there because I do think as evangelicals in the West, we haven't really given a lot of space for mystery we've really valued intellectualism and rationality and, you know, systematic theology. Things need to make sense and fit into like an argumentation, some apologetics as we might call it. Uh, and so the idea of a mystery, something we don't understand and can't understand and can't control, uh, we can't study it until we do understand it. Um, that's very hard for us on that level. But then also knowing the way that the Jewish people in the first century were wrestling through that as well. Pre-colonial uh, concepts of mystery will understand us, uh, help us understand this. Um, and further, in uh, other writings of Paul, he talks about mystery in really weird ways. Like, I don't know if you remember Dallas or if you've ever like studied it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about like being called up into the third heaven and stuff. Like, I think Dante's Inferno is based loosely on 2 Corinthians 12, um, but just in the first few verses, Paul writes um, of 2 Corinthians 12, it is necessary to boast. Nothing is to be gained by it, but I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. 
I know a person in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, only God knows. And I know that such a person, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard things that are not to be told that no mortal is permitted to speak. It's like very cryptic language about mysteries and mystical experiences. Um, I know a few years ago I got really into Richard Rohr and some of my like spiritual mentors were kind of freaked out by that because like Richard Rohr is a Catholic mystic and like what place does mysticism have in our tradition? Um, I think typically there's not much space for mysticism. And yet Paul speaks very much like a mystic, a mystical, mystical and mystery or have a common root. Um, this mystery that's been revealed. Uh, I think that language could maybe make us uncomfortable in our culture, but necessarily uncomfortable. And so I love just being open to this language of, of mysticism and the mystical, being called up and being, you know, shown mysterious things. It's helpful. And especially, obviously, to be, it's helpful in the context of Ephesians. He's talking about the joining of Jew and, Jew and Gentile. He's talking about the household of God, who has a place in the household of God, who gets to give the invite. <laughs> um, this is at the heart of all those mysteries. So we'll talk about that in a second. But did you ever have um, a mystical experience or use that kind of language in your church life growing up? And how was that received? No, the mystical was never a part of the church that I grew up in. So the first time I ever heard anything about the mystical would have been like first year um, university in a Christian spirituality spirituality class that I took. And they started talking about the like the ancient mystics and I had no clue what that was. It is not a part of at least Alliance tradition um, or the things that we talk about in church. Yeah, I, I had a dream in like my third year of university that felt very mystical, like unlike any other kind of dream I'd had. And I know that there's like mystical dreams in the Bible, like especially in Genesis. But I had never been like discipled into dreams and dream space. And I went to a, a professor at Ambrose named Charles Neenkirken, who did a lot of work with the mystics, the desert fathers and mothers. And I was like, closed his office door and was like, I think I may have had a spiritual dream. Can I tell you about it? Because like, I don't know where I can go without people being like, oh, Nikayla, that's weird. And he it was really affirming, spoke. He's like, that was definitely a mystical experience. You need to like meditate on that dream and just gave me permission to sort of be curious about the mystical and it was pretty impact impacting on me. So here we are in Ephesians three, Paul says, um, surely you have already heard of the commission of God's grace that was given me for you and how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. Um, apparently Paul uses the word mystery seven times in the book of Ephesians, three times in chapter three here. So it's really important concept, the mystery. I am kind of curious and excited to jump in to what the mystery is and what role um, Paul's suffering plays in that. But I also know that you want to talk about the idea of mystery in connection to wisdom. Should we talk about wisdom now or suffering now? Well, let's talk about uh, suffering now. Okay. So when, when he, he says mystery three times and then he says what the mystery is. So in verse five, and this one I love because <laughs> as evangelicals, this verse should give us pause and should make us immediately uncomfortable. 
he says in verse five, in former generations, this mystery was not made known to humankind as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the spirit. So this is, I wonder if the listeners can understand why this is so challenging. He's not saying that all of these truths are kept safe in the Old Testament, but now Paul's eyes have been opened to understand the mysteries that are there in the Old Testament. He sort of says, no, they weren't there, but they're here now. And I grew up, I mean, I chose to become a Bible scholar because of my love of the Bible. And I really believed that like, if it's in the Bible, it's good. If it's not in the Bible, we should immediately be suspicious of it. Uh, so the Bible is the standard to which we hold everything. So if you have someone come to the church and they're like, I've discerned that God taught me this, and it's directly in contrast to what the scriptures teach, we'd be like, no, that wasn't from God. If it can't be aligned with scripture, it's not of God. But I could say this a hundred times, and I think we would still not quite comprehend. That's the point of the end of chapter three. We'll see here. Just how profound what Paul's doing here is Paul says, yes, it's true. The scriptures are very clear that much of what I'm suggesting here is, is wrong. And yet I'm suggesting it anyway because of the spirit. And the way he talks about that is the mystery that's been revealed to him. So two things to note. One, uh, the canon, like when I say the canon, I mean the books of the Bible, like the 66 books of the Bible that we Protestants have, um, has been considered closed for hundreds of years, meaning we're not going to like add Tim Keller's book or like Rachel Held Evans' book to the Bible and call it the like inspired word of God because we don't think anything can be added or removed, added to or removed from the, the canon, the text. But obviously there were times in history when that canon was not closed and committees and councils were deciding what was scripture and what wasn't. And so when Paul's writing this letter to the Ephesians, they didn't have the same understanding of canon as we did. So when the canon's not closed, i.e. books are being written and then considered scripture, uh, you could talk about mysteries that haven't yet been revealed or how this is a new mystery that we're going to add. So it is important to know that around this time, um, some first century uh, Jews believed that prophecy and revelation was ongoing and there was still more to come. Um, Josephus uh, would be counted among those who believed that there were still mysteries yet to be revealed. Um, and then there were some who had been like felt strongly that, no, we have the law and the prophets and the writings and that's it. Um, and most likely Paul didn't imagine while writing this, that it, this would be considered scripture. So he can talk about mysteries that have not yet been made known or that are being made known now. And even if they contradict with other books of the Bible, that's okay. And just to say, although I would have gotten in trouble for saying this in my younger years, there are contradictions in the scriptures. You know, Proverbs comes to different theological conclusions than Job. Uh, There are differences in Deuteronomy than in Exodus. They're telling the same story. You know, the, the chronicler and the author of First Kings, there's differences. And yet we believe it is scripture, it is canon. So instead of the scriptures sort of giving us certainty and like this beautiful, polished final product, I think the scriptures do invite us into dialogue, invite us into wrestling, into community, into conversation, into pondering. And having those uh, invitations to ponder definitely would lead to humility and awe before the mystery. Whereas if everything was like clean and polished and nothing contradicted there were no differences it might just lead to ego and colonialism (laughs) but uh 
yeah, this talk of mystery is profound. And he writes in verse six, the mystery is this. This is the mystery that's been revealed that's never been revealed until now, that the Gentiles have become fellow heirs, members of the same body and sharers in the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. This is the big mystery. The Gentiles are now part of the same body. There's no way of overstating how big of a deal that would have been in the first century. The Old Testament is very clear. There's a very strong dividing line between Jew and Gentile. And for Paul to write, the Gentile is, <laughs> it's been revealed now that the Gentile actually gets to be a full member, co-heir and sharer in the promise. Uh, that's a really big deal. And that's the whole point of the book of Ephesians. The Ephesian church is mostly all Gentiles. And remember from verse one, Paul is in prison, um, bound in chains to two prison guards while writing this letter. And Paul's incarceration never ends. He is eventually executed and does not get to go and visit the church in Ephesus. So the whole purpose, I guess I can mention, I guess, the suffering. So, so he says, um, the mystery is this, that the Gentiles, you know, become part of the same body. And then in verse 7, this is the reason I'm in chains. He says, of this gospel, I have become a servant according to the gift of God's grace. Although I am the very least of all the saints, you know, this, this is the work I've been called to. And then he says, I pray, therefore, in verse 13, that you may not lose heart over my sufferings for you because they are your glory. Like, I am literally imprisoned because of this. And he doesn't mean, like, I'm in prison just because I love Jesus so much and this is where Jesus has brought me. He's like, no, like specifically the charges against him. You can find the story in Acts 21. Um, in Acts 21, Paul is arrested for the final time and he remains in jail for the rest of the book of Acts. And the reason he's incarcerated is because he brings Gentiles into the temple. He crosses a boundary, um, a boundary that is scriptural, <laughs> a boundary that's been in place since Abraham. And so the story goes like this. It says... Um, in Acts 21, verse 17, when we arrived at Jerusalem, so Jerusalem being like the capital, like the center of Judaism, where the temple is, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, and the we in Acts 21 is Luke speaking, the next day Paul and the rest of us went to see James and all the elders who were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Yay! When they heard this, they praised God. But then they said to Paul, you see, brother, See how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They are going to hear that you have come, so here's what we want you to do. So they're worried. Listen, Paul, there's bad rumors going around about you that you're telling Gentiles not to get circumcised and live according to the scripture. You don't want to be caught doing that in Jerusalem, the center of our identity. And so we want you to join with these four men who have made this special vow. You should take them into the temple, pay for their purification rites, and just kind of just showcase for everyone that you're on our side and you're on the side of the scriptures. Um, then everyone will know that all of these rumors are untrue. Um, as for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from all these things. 
blah, blah, blah. And in verse 26, then the next day, Paul took the men, did all the things that the, the elders kind of advised him to do. And when the seven days were nearly over, in verse 27, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our scriptures and this place. And besides, he, and here's the accusation, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. To bring a Gentile into the Jewish space is to defile the space. And if you defile the space, that means God can no longer dwell there. And then in brackets, it says in verse 29, the, the rumor was based on um, Paul brought Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city um, and they had assumed that Paul brought him into the temple. So here we have in Ephesians 3, Paul's writing to Gentile Ephesians. He's in jail because of him bringing an Ephesian Gentile into the city. And then there's an assumption, but in Acts, we're never told if he actually did bring him into the temple or not, though I think he did. Um, the whole city was aroused at this accusation because this is like pure evil. You can't bring Gentiles into our sacred space and defile the space. So the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple. Immediately the gates were shut. They were trying to kill him. And the news uh, reached the commander of the Roman troops. So now the Romans, like I just, just picture the chaos, crowds of people trying to kill Paul. And then Roman soldiers, like armed men, armed troops coming in to break up the chaos. They arrest Paul to protect Paul from the crowds, from the rioters. The commander in verse 33 says, came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. And the crowds were all shouting one thing and then another thing. And the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar. So he ordered Paul be taken away into the barracks for his own protection. And when Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great, the soldiers had to physically carry him. But they continued to shout, get rid of him, get rid of him. And just a side note, the profundity of this text is that Luke is comparing Paul to Jesus, that Jesus' arrest and Paul's arrest. You have crowds of people shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Um, like like Jesus' whole trial was kind of just filled with chaos and riots and late night interrogations and whatnot. And then Paul's, it's being told of Paul, the Paul truly did walk in the footsteps of Jesus and pick up his cross and follow him. He's arrested in the same way. Um, and then finally, Paul asks the soldiers if he could address the crowd. And the soldiers agree, but the soldiers have to like keep Paul safe. And then in Acts 22, um, I won't read it all, but Paul stands up, addresses the crowds who are literally trying to kill him, who he sees as his own people. So there's a rejection there that's really profound. He says, listen, I'm a Jew. I'm one of you. Um, I was brought up in this very city. I studied under Gamaliel. I like I was trained in the law just like you. I'm one of you. I'm one of you. Um, he just told his story. And then he saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. Um, Jesus said, who are you? you know, why are you persecuting me? And he sort of starts following the Jesus way. And then near the end, Paul says, and then when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance. I saw the Lord speaking to me. Quick, he said, leave Jerusalem. The people here will not accept you. Lord, I replied, these people know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. The Lord said, you need to go. I am going to send you away to the Gentiles. And then finally, it says the crowd listened to Paul until he said this. They raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him. He is not fit to live. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks 
and flinging dust into the air. So now this, the roles have been reversed. Paul has become Stephen. And the, the mob is about to kill Paul. Paul used to be the one that they were giving their cloaks to while they went to kill a Christian. And now Paul's the one that they're throwing off their cloaks um, to go kill. And the, the commanders have to protect Paul. But they bring him in to flog and interrogate him, just like Jesus. But a piece of privilege Paul has that Jesus didn't have is that Paul's a Roman citizen. So they stop the flogging. And because he's a Roman citizen and for no other reason, Paul gets to demand an audience with Caesar. You can't condemn me to death without, you know, Caesar. So then the rest of the book of Acts is his journey bound in chains to Roman commanders to Rome to appeal to Caesar. And in that time, he wrote this letter to the Ephesians. So when Paul says in verse 13, I pray therefore that you may not lose heart over my sufferings for you. They are your glory. He literally means, I am suffering for you, not because of you, for you. I would rather die than give up the gospel proclamation that there is a seat at God's table for you. For this reason, then he goes on in the second half, I bow my knees before the Father um, in prayer. And so we think of Jesus as Christians, especially during Lent, as the suffering servant, thinking of Isaiah 53. Um, Jesus is pierced for our transgressions. Um, the punishment that uh, brought us death was upon him. The kind of suffering servant uh, motif from Isaiah 53. I think Luke is presenting Paul in the same similar lens, in, in the similar light, that Paul is a suffering servant for the proclamation of the gospel hope, which is not you are no longer guilty, you the individual, but it is you have a place of belonging in the household of God. What's offensive and profound and mysterious about this is who's invited in, not who's kept out, leading up to a future Rachel Held Evans quote there. Um, Paul's a suffering servant, and Paul has literally, he will literally be executed because of his radical inclusion of the Gentiles, who according to the scriptures are not allowed in. And Paul does not require the Gentiles to convert and start following Jewish customs. Um, so before I finish this long section of me talking, I will just say um, we in the West have not even begun to comprehend the gospel that Paul is proclaiming. Um, Paul is not inviting the Gentiles to convert and become Jews, but nor is Paul anti-Semitic. And most of the interpretations I've seen of scripture and the way Christians talk about the scriptures is in a way that just speaks very uh, negatively about Jewish people. That, well, the Jews were these hard-headed people that were super legalistic and super concerned about, you know, the wrath of God. And we're not like that anymore. Now we're free. It's like, no, 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 no. The bad guy isn't the Jews. Like, let's be careful that we don't read this like super supersessionist or just anti-Semitic. Read it to acknowledge that there are people protecting the traditions, people protecting the sacred space, and Paul is transgressing those boundaries. They think Paul's defiling their customs and their tradition and their scriptures. There are some of us today in the evangelical church that would also give up our lives to defend and protect our sacred tradition and our sacred scriptures. Paul's not on that side. He's choosing to submit to the mystery, the new thing. Paul's suggesting a change of mind, a change of heart, that we follow the spirit, even when we have to let go of some of our allegiance to the text. 
which I don't even know if I'm allowed to say as an evangelical. So there's a lot here. But no, it, it, it is incredible when you hear the context of that and what Paul was going through and the position that he's speaking from. And it makes you think about who it is that uh, who it is that we in the church do not want to invite in, um, who we are against, um, the ideas that we reject because they don't fit into our our comfortable understanding of the scriptures, and it forces us to uh, wrestle with those ideas and those questions. That's exactly it. I think we we're, it'll take a, another couple decades to wrestle with just how big of a deal it is that Paul is asking, like what, what Paul is asking us to change our mind about. Um, like Paul himself was a, a staunch defender of tradition. And then he encountered Jesus and changed his mind and was like, I'm going to follow the spirit. But then, so he had to change his mind about tradition. And then the Christians that Paul used to persecute had to change their mind about Paul, who was persecuting them, and then follow him and trust him as a leader. That's radical change of mind. And the Gentiles have to change their minds about the Jews. The Jews have to change their minds about the Gentiles. Like there's all sorts of change. And it would be, a, it would feel very um, unstable and it would feel terrifying. It would feel, well, well, how do we know what's true? How do we know what's good? How do we know? Like the scripture says Gentiles have to be circumcised. Yeah, but the spirit says they don't. What? Like this would just be so destabilizing. And Paul's in jail. <laughs> like Paul knows this destabilization of it more than, um, more than most. But it's a mystery, and it's dangerous. And yet, there's talk of the wisdom, the wisdom in it, which I think um, Dallas, you have a lot to say about wisdom. Yeah. Well, I I was going to say I think that transitions well into the next thing that I want to talk about, which is, which is the the wisdom of God, which I think has a lot to say for for navigating the complexity of we don't know what's happening. We don't know how to deal with this. Well, we thought it was this way and somebody's saying something different and we just feel lost. Like I feel like any Bible college student who pays attention will go through that at some point in their, their career of being like, I don't even know what to think anymore. Mm -hmm. um, but I wanted to talk about wisdom because in verse 10, I'll start with verse nine um, uh, and to make everyone see what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things verse 10 so that through the church, the wisdom of God in its rich variety might now be made known to the rulers um, and authorities in the heavenly places. So I just want to bring up this makes me think of a passage in Proverbs. Uh, now Proverbs if you don't know, a lot of Proverbs is about this comparison between Lady Wisdom and uh, Lady Folly. And the the comparison of, of young Jewish people trying to choose between Wisdom and Folly, and they are personified in these characters. Um, and Wisdom is obviously the good choice that leads to the, the right path, and Folly is uh, devastation and not good things. So in Proverbs chapter 8, there is um, a poem that begins in verse 22, and it is about wisdom's part in creation. So it kind of brings us back to what happens in Genesis when God is creating the world. Um, and so in verse 22, um, it's about 
nine verses, it says this, the Lord created me being wisdom at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of long ago, ages ago, I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth when there were no springs abounding with water before the mountains had been shaped before the hills, I was brought forth when he had not yet made earth and fields or the world's first bits of soil. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master worker, and I was, his, I was daily his delight rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the human race. I want to, I wrote a paper on this whole passage this past year when I was doing a class on wisdom literature in the Old Testament. Um, and this poem depicts wisdom, the wisdom of God as a female character who is dancing and rejoicing in the presence of her creator, God, as God creates the world and all of its beauty. She is celebrating the intricacies and the differences in each of God's created things, from the creatures and the plants to everything in between and people. Wisdom cherishes the union, the, the, the peace, the harmony of all things in God's creation, which he labels good. And then you fast forward into the New Testament. Jesus is thought to be the embodiment of wisdom. And so we, if we want to know what God's wisdom looks like in life, we look to Jesus. And Jesus, who was constantly shattering cultural norms, was an agent of justice and love and compassion uh, of doing what Paul is doing here, uh, where he is focused more on loving people and saying it's not quite just what you thought in the scriptures. And so Paul is in, here in Ephesians is saying that the church now ought to be the one that makes God's wisdom known, that we choose lady wisdom and seek the prosperity and the, the goodness of people. Uh, I wanted to read just a paragraph from my paper that I think captures this well. Now we look at the implications of wisdom for the church life or the Christian life, and how does this text speak to its readers today? So wisdom is firstly a relational idea. If wisdom is relational and about establishing and maintaining order, then upholding right relationship with God's creation is of utmost importance. Anything that places humanity into boxes of equal and lesser value is opposite to what wisdom rejoices in and invites humanity into. So we don't have to look far to see where the world has diminished another race or gender or political party or some other category for the sake of personal gain and comfort. Um, and Hugh Matlack, Hugh Matlack once wrote, wisdom celebrates a world untouched by human sin. The choice she offers us is to see that world too. Just as the followers of Jesus had to see beyond him to recognize the child of God in the child of humanity, so we have to find the goodness of creation in the face of a broken world. I think that's really profound, this connection of like the created realm and like God as creator, like at the heart of our faith as Christians is this incarnation, God among us in a human body. Um, but we often think like the mysteries of God and these truths are, are ultimately spiritual. 
And the only reason we miss out on it is because of like the material realm. But this sort of Christian materiality as opposed to spirituality suggests, and you're reading from Proverbs 8, that wisdom is found in the material. Like in, in, in um, like, like the wisdom that was with God, um, it's, in, it's incarnational. It's missional. It's on the ground. It's not just a truth that we know in our own heart or in our own intellect, mm -hmm. but it's, it's known in our body. It's known in our neighborhood. It's known in Boness. Like this mystery of, of belonging and joining is, it's written in the code of creation is, again, makes it exciting to be a church leader now. <laughs> so we're, we're recovering some um, ways of knowing and ways of being in this land that have been lost to colonialism and uh, the displacement from the land and, and creation and yeah, the wisdom. Wisdom is earthy. That's really profound. Richard Niebuhr uh, said, in ethics, the church is the first to repent for the sins of a society and it repents on behalf of all. When it becomes apparent that slavery is transgression of the divine commandment, then the church repents of it, turns its back upon it, abolishes it within itself. It does this not as the holy community separate from the world, but as the pioneer and representative. It repents for the sin of the whole society and leads in the social act of repentance. When the proper, when the property institutions of society are subject to question because innocent suffering illuminates their antagonism to the will of God, then the church undertakes to change its own use of these institutions and to lead society in their reformation. So also the church becomes a pioneer and representative of society in the practices of equality before God, in the reformation of institutions of rulership, in the acceptance of mutual responsibility of individuals for one another. Okay, so second half of chapter three in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name. I pray that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you are being rooted and grounded in love. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. I love this section so much. I suspect, I don't know, did you have, like when I think of Paul texts that I had memorized from like an early age, this breadth, length, height, depth of God's love and this God accomplishing more than you could ever ask or imagine. Those were big ones for me. Like I had those memorized. I, I think... What what really pulls on my heartstrings as a pastor in this section is that Paul is not speaking to those who are already on the inside. Like you go to like the book of Romans, that's probably more who Paul's talking to. Like he's not this when he says you, that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints the breadth, length, height, and depth of the love of Christ. He's not reassuring the 
the people on the inside, the gatekeepers saying, don't worry, God loves you so much. Don't worry. It's okay if we open ourselves a little bit more to receive and, and, and imagine God's table being even bigger. He's not talking to those who are already at the table, comforting them and consoling them that they have to pull up more chairs. He's looking at those who've never had a place at the table, who've never been on the inside. And he's saying, I just pray that you know, even though I'm in jail because I tried to get you in, <laughs> even though you have been rejected and excluded from this community um, forever, it, like, like especially the Jewish, um, I mean, um, the Gentiles, God, the Gentile God-fearers who had wanted to be a part of it forever but couldn't be. For example, the eunuch in Acts chapter 6, 7, 5, 9. Philip and the eunuch. I'm going to say, no, 5 is Ananias of fire. I'm going to say chapter 9 or 8. Great early Acts. Um, the eunuch is a, a, a Gentile God-fearer who would be going for the pilgrimages to Jerusalem for the sacred festivals every year, but he would never be allowed in the temple ever. Paul's talking to those folks who want to be in, like he's not on the mission field. You know, these are like non-believers, like just want you to know you've never heard of Jesus. You've never heard of any of this. God loves you. And now that is all true and good. But the context is people who've desperately wanted to be included, like a God-fearing community. Uh, some of them, some of them were probably new, like new converts, this idea, but many of them would have been wanting to have a place and being told no and for him to stop. So like as a pastor, I often only get to talk to, you know, the people in the church. Though my gifts of um, evangelism means sometimes I do get to talk to those on the outside. But he's speaking to those on the outside. He's not speaking to the sheep in his fold saying like, you're so loved, which is why we need to welcome more people. He's talking to those who've just newly been welcomed or who haven't yet been welcomed. And he's like, I just pray that you would know you are beloved, beloved, beloved. You are more beloved than your brain could ever comprehend. And I know that from the tip of my toes to the ends of my hair, like I know that you are loved and I pray that you would know that too. And I pray that you would know it with a knowledge that surpasses knowledge, like you'd know it in your bones. And I just, I don't know. I think of people in my life who've been excluded, whether it was because they were divorced or they were, uh, you know, got pregnant before their wedding day or many other reasons why. And for Paul to just look straight at those folks and say, it is for this reason that I am imprisoned, that you would know, <laughs> that you would have the power to comprehend with all of the saints, the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And then that you would be filled with the fullness of God, that your body would be a home for God and that you would know that your body is a home for God, even your uncircumcised body your body that is, you know, doesn't have the traditional markers of belonging that you would know that you are already a home of God. It's just, it's very powerful. It's a very pastoral text, don't, wouldn't you say? Yeah, the way I, I go with it or the way that I previously understood this text, you know, like you, you read, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I think I, I find myself relating more to the Jewish people at the time who had like perfect knowledge of the scriptures who could recite everything in them down to a T. I find myself kind of in that place where I'm like, okay, well I can, I can tell you what the scripture says here, or I could, I can remember, you know, Ephesians three verse 19. Cool. 
but like you said, there's something beyond that head knowledge, something beyond that. Oh, I know what it says there. Mm -hmm. There's an understanding of humanity, of otherness, of difference. There is compassion for the, the lowly and those who are not recognized. And I think, I think we definitely mm -hmm. in some of our, more prominent evangelical circles. We'll read this from the position that you said of, well, he's speaking to us. Well, he is speaking to us, but he's also primarily speaking to the other people who don't have a place. Mm -hmm. And there's something that we don't get when we're, when we're focused on what we can understand and what we can read and memorize. So yeah, I yeah. would agree. It's very pastoral and it's, it's beautiful. Yeah, he, he, he's in jail because of who he's included. And, and that's how this chapter begins. Um, the mystery, the great mystery is that Gentiles have become fellow heirs, members of the same body and sharers in the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. And the body isn't the Jewish body or the traditional body, the body of customs. It's the body of Jesus Christ, which is poured out for us at the communion table. Um. This is why I'm here is for these Gentiles to know that they have a place of belonging. And then he just, he speaks directly to them here at the end. I pray that you may have the power. And, and like, I won't go off on this because this episode, I don't want to be too long, but the power, the power that we have, we, we in the West, the power that we have in Christ can be, you know, the power to influence elections, the power to, we, we really, the church has a really kind of, unhealthy relationship with power here in the West, specifically like the white kind of middle class, upper class evangelical church. But the power, the power that Paul prays we have is the power to three things, the power to comprehend the love, the boundary transgressing love of Jesus, the power to um, know that which surpasses knowledge and the power to be filled with the fullness of God. It's the power to, of knowing that you are loved and that you belong and that you are a co-heir. Like it reminds me of in John's gospel, he's like the authority that the church has isn't the authority to like determine who's in and who's out. It's the authority to forgive sin. Mm. <laughs> and when you forgive sin, as, as Paul is demonstrating here in chapter three, it's not, I forgive you, you are forgiven, meaning um, the sticker you had on your chest that said guilty, I'm going to pull that off. And now you have a new sticker that says not guilty. That's not what the forgiveness does. That's not all the forgiveness does. Um, the power to forgive sins is to take off the sticker that says guilty and put on a sticker that says you belong. It's a, it's a, a mystery into belonging and community, not just like an individual standing with God. And that's what is offensive. I think people would be fine if Paul's just going around helping every single individual get like individual salvation and then them and the Holy Spirit will work it out. He's calling them into a community and calling those who think they're already in the community also into a new community. <laughs> Everybody changes uh, to, to become one in Jesus. And it's, you're going to need to have, you're not going to be able to comprehend this with your intellect you will not be able to understand it with your experience, um, with your tradition, with your custom. You're going to need power to comprehend something that is unknowable, that is beyond the highest heights and the deepest depths, and that like truly surpasses knowledge. And that will take great humility and faith and hope and love. 
it will be a downward journey, not an upward journey. And then I just love in verse 20 there, he final he, he ends with like a benediction in this chapter. He says, now to him who by the power at work within us, the power to comprehend the love of God, to know the love of God that's beyond knowledge and to be filled with the fullness of God. To him who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine. The call to a bigger imagination is everything to me about what it means to be a Christian in 2021 in the West is to reconfigure our imagination. That we have imagined a big Sunday service. Uh, we have imagined mega churches. We have imagined shiny Christian brands. Maybe maybe like the, the outskirts of our imagination is like, our worship service could be so great. We could have our own record label and put out our own album. Instead, um, it's an imagination around belonging and that God will actually, even when we think we've imagined it all, the work that God is doing within us is going to push us even to a greater imagination. Uh, my friend Jay from Prince George sent me a, a message this morning. He was reading uh, the G's magazine from spring of 2021. I know Dave and Hannah love G's. I don't know if you've been a subscriber to G's magazines. They're pretty great. Um, but there's a quote there by, I have it here written down, but um, named Diane De Prima. And the quote says, the only war that matters is the war against the imagination. All other wars are subsumed in it. And our limited imagination is um, keeping us from tearing down the walls of hostility that are between us. Um, our limited imagination is sometimes means all of our effort and work goes into keeping people out <laughs> and creating clearer boundaries and bigger boxes for the inside and the outside and all that kind of work. But I don't think that's what our work is that Paul is calling us towards the work of Jesus is to be. To know something beyond knowledge that pushes you to transgress boundaries. Paul's sitting in jail because he brought Gentiles into the temple and he didn't think he defiled the temple because he's like, yeah, the temple is the home of God, but so is the body of this Gentile. To comprehend that, yeah. To, do, do you know that you are loved? And I think inside of each of us, there's a, an internal critic that tells us that we're not loved, that we don't belong, that there's something wrong with us. Um, you know, I, 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 here's a funny example. You might delete this out. I've gone to a few weddings lately where at the end of the wedding, and they're often like very Christian and beautiful weddings, but at the end of the wedding, then the dance starts and then all of the parents leave and the aunties and uncles and the grandparents leave and then they're all kind of dancing and the, you know, the dance is more, uh, it seems like a different display. And I think how many of us grew up thinking like, well, that wasn't Christian, like the dance was just fun, we were just letting loose, but that wasn't like the best. And they're, they're, we can kind of like internalize the shame that like some, some part of us knows, we all know that there's some part of us that isn't loved and that isn't good and isn't welcome. So we maybe hide that part of ourselves and like let it out once in a while when the parents aren't around. But really that that, even that part of us is so grounded in love and worthy of celebration and to attach shame to it would be to oppose the work of God. It's a radical text, the book of Ephesians, that I'm grateful for this chance to be in. It's the mystery of Ephesians 3. Mm -hmm.